2: Jan, you're um, you're calling from Cambridge. I already know this.
3: I am. I'm sitting at my husband's desk, which is extraordinarily uncomfortable and I'm surrounded by all sorts of machinery that I don't usually use, including all this webcam and whatnot. I have a much more respectable, booky sort of office and I <laughs> much prefer it. Uh,
2: I, I love the idea of a man manly desk, very gissing kind of... Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it
3: is, actually. The whole thing is... I think men on the whole seem to like sort of big-backed black chairs. <laughs> I have noticed this. It's not just in my own home.
0: Simon, so we've got somebody from Cambridge
1: and we've got somebody from elsewhere in the country. Where are you? Um, I'm a couple of miles south of Durham, so just on the banks of the Weir. If you have to be locked down somewhere, I can recommend being locked down in the, in the Durham countryside.
2: Brilliant. Are you? Are you? Um, are you affected by the the um, the northeast being put into lockdown? I suppose you probably are.
1: It it, it will be, but um, but we're we're not going out. We're not going to the pub, and we're not seeing anyone. So in that sense, for bookish people, the lockdown is probably a bit less of a disaster than it otherwise might be. <laughs> um, Go on,
2: Mitch. Okay, shall we start? Kick it off. Hello, and welcome to Batlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us walking briskly through the dusty streets of late Victorian London. We've left a cramped set of rooms in Lavender Hill and are making our way towards Miss Barfoot's workroom in Great Portland Street, pondering the implications of trying to make do in London on sixpence a day. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read.
0: And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Joining us today are... Janet Todd and Simon James. Hello, both of you.
1: Hello. Hi. Hello.
0: Janet Todd is known especially for her biographies and editions of early women writers. She's published books on Mary Wollstonecraft, Jane Austen, Samuel Richardson and Aphra Behn. Her most recent novel, published by the Fenton Press earlier this year, is Don't You Know There's a War On? In 2018, Fenton also published her memoir, Radiation Diaries, described by someone called Hilary Mantel I've never (laughs) heard of her as frank Rye, and unexpectedly heartening were you that's a lovely thing to say about somebody's book Jan were you delighted
3: I think it is I'm hugely grateful that she said it too (laughs) so that that I can mention it in the book (laughs) it was a rather odd thing to do really it was it was a in the end it the overarching thing was a cancer diary, but it turned out to be a memoir of my life, interspersed with the you know, bits of the cancer. And I rather wish I'd done two books, you <laughs> know, written a memoir perhaps separately from it. But in the process of that, I did discuss various ailments that I have been heir to in my long life. And one is certainly insomnia, which I think you will get to discuss. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I feel very strongly that my insomnia is greater than anybody (laughs) else's. I feel hugely competitive. I love these insomnia books, but I do feel a sense of great competition about it.
0: Our second guest is Simon James. Simon is Professor of Victorian Literature at the Department of English Studies, Durham University. He's published and edited work on H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Arthur Conan Doyle and the Victorian bestsellers Trilby and The Sorrows of Satan. He regularly contributes to the Durham Book Festival, uh, was the principal investigator on the Durham Commission on Creativity and Education for Arts Council England. Simon's PhD was mostly on brackets, and he's published two books on <laughs>
1: close brackets George
0: Gissing. Um, Hello, Simon. <laughs>
1: Hi, it's a real pleasure to be on the Bat Books Podcast. Oh, of the world. Thank you for having I me. I must <laughs> tell
0: the listeners how this invitation came about.
1: Yes, you must.
2: <laughs> so
0: Simon and I have been talking about his, the, him, him possibly coming on to Batlisted for some time. And I've still got you penciled in for a couple of books, but I can't, I'm not going to say what they are because we don't want to let the cat out the back. Mm. But the other day, Simon was saying on Twitter how much he'd enjoyed our episode on Therese Racan by Emile Zola, the most recent episode. And Backlisted replied to him and, and said, well, Simon, if you, if you enjoyed that, you're certainly going to enjoy the, the ongoing naturalistic theme because next time we're doing George Gissing. And uh, Simon replied, oh, yes, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm looking forward to that more than almost any episode ever. And I was sitting here reading that tweet and I was thinking to myself, oh, yeah, he probably is looking forward to that because he's written a couple of books on George Gissing. Wait a minute! <laughs> i wait a minute i could ask him to come on so you are you are uh we are tremendously grateful to you
1: for uh sharing your expertise with us at relatively short notice oh, it's great to be here I'm, uh, and a de- delight actually to read um the odd women again for uh you know not since i finished the book so um i you know you've talked in an early episode about reading different writers reading jd salinger in youth and middle age so i'm i've i've It's been really interesting rereading The Odd Women at uh, at my current time of life. Well, that is the book
2: we're doing. So uh, The Odd Women, George Gissing. The Odd Women's quite a long book.
0: (laughs) And we set this date up 48 hours ago. Have you really
1: reread The Odd Women in 48 hours? Uh, Yes, I did. I'm lucky I can read uh, quite quickly. My PhD was on Gissing and Charles Dickens and H.G. Wells. And also, I spent a year working on Henry James, who never made it into the final <laughs> version of the thesis. So if there's any young people out there listening and thinking about doing a <laughs> PhD thesis, may I advise, don't choose four of the most prolific novelists of the 19th century for oh, what God, is supposed yeah. to be a, a three-year project. But But fortunately, I think if you work on Victorian fiction, you have to be someone who can read or at least... Uh, reread uh, quite quite quickly. So yes, I I have just as um, Anthony Trollope would write novels with his stopwatch at his elbow, timing himself. <laughs> I've been reading this novel with my watch at my elbow to make sure it was it was fully done by the time we convened again this evening. Janet,
2: in your own fiction, would you find the you know was it, did you respond in some way against the the the, the longer novels? That, I mean, you're obviously you you're. Your interest is probably earlier eighteenth, the long eighteenth century, rather than the nineteenth century. But you know, let's be honest, Richardson not a, not 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 a not a slouch when it comes to to, to length.
3: It's <laughs> true. It's very true. Well, I actually am a very very slow reader. So, in fact, I spent about a year reading Samuel Richardson. Um, I did, I, but I am one of the few people who has read Sir Charles Grandison, which is the really huge Mm. one. Me too. I have also read the interminable French romances of the 17th century, so I feel that I've (laughs) done my bit. But (laughs) my trouble was that I came to Kissing very early and then then came feminism and I did women writers, you know. I excavated Mm. and I wrote about them and I taught them and I was up to my gills in early women writers. And so... It was a long time before the dead white male really came into focus again. And reading, getting again now, it I realise that the gap between the first reading and this, my second reading, is, well, uh, much over half a century.
2: Well, we should definitely come back to that. But before we do that, Andy, I should ask you what you've been reading this week.
0: Thank you, John. I've been reading a book called The Shapeless Unease by Samantha Harvey. Uh, this was published in January this year. And it's taken on a sort of unhappy relevance and resonance as the year has gone on. The subtitle is A Year of Not Sleeping. And as we uh, alluded to earlier on, this is a book about insomnia. Speaking for myself, I haven't slept so little since my son was a baby quite some time ago. I reckon I get about four or five hours a night tops and consider that if that comes in one burst, consider that quite Mm. fortunate. Oh, God, yeah. So Samantha Harvey's book is a, a very interesting combination of it's a collection of essays, elements of memoir. There's a short story that is created seemingly in the course of the book, which she visits first as an idea and then starts to work through uh, for you, the reader. And that's quite challenging, I think, to bookshops. Uh, where on earth is this book going to live? But it's not challenging to to the reader once they are into the flow of the book. Because what it's actually like, um, ingeniously, is a night of sleeplessness. It wanders from topic to topic, sometimes rather blissfully, sometimes rather anxiously. It revisits embarrassing moments, moments of pride. It dwells on the paranoia about what will happen if you don't get any sleep. (laughs) It's very, very well written, as you would expect, from a novelist of Samantha Harvey's stature. She's the author of Dear Thief, The Western Wind, a couple of other things. I'll just read you a little bit. There aren't any chapters, but this is a section called 3am The long trail of the freight train snags the night. Something has been torn. How apt that phrase morning has broken. It won't be mended now until night falls again. From here there will be no more freight trains, then the first flight passing overhead at around four, and at five or five thirty the traffic will start up, and from there our hyperactive little planet will flare once more to life. At three, the first ember has already taken. In reality, For those awake enough to register it, there is about an hour of night at most. Somewhere between two and three. A brief lull between one day dwindling and the next awakening. I get up. Current wisdom is conflicted on this. Some sleep regimes say you should get up if you're still awake after 20 minutes so that you don't associate bed with sleeplessness. Others say you should stay in bed regardless, so that you don't signal to the body that it's normal to be up in the night. Instead, you stay in bed and accept what comes. Inherently inert at night and clinging on to some idea of myself as a good sleeper, I'm much more predisposed to the latter. Tonight, though, I get up. I'm restless. I make a cup of tea. Absolutely no sleep regimes advocate having a caffeinated drink at 3am, but I did it once and went straight to sleep afterwards, so occasionally I try it just in case it works again, which it never has. There's a line from a Philip Larkin poem that comes to me. I don't know the poem firsthand. I found it in a book about poetry I've recently read, something about a million-petalled flower. Sitting on the sofa in my underwear drinking tea, I do the other thing no sleep regime advocates. I go online. There is the poem in which Larkin remarks on the oblivion of death. It is only oblivion, he says. We had it before, but then it was going to end, and was all the time merging with a unique endeavour to bring to bloom the 1000000 petaled flower of being here. It feels like a bell ringing distantly, like the heralding of company in what you thought was a desert Or an abyss. Suddenly I don't feel lonely, I feel elated, and everything is soft and full of echoes and resonance. Then I think of a line from another poem by Jack Underwood that describes the elation of holding a newborn baby. I can feel my socks being on, he writes. And when I read it, I can feel my socks being on, even if I'm not wearing any. At around half past three, I go back to bed. To have come this far through the night. And feel in some way peaceful is surely an augur for sleep. Also, I'm cold. Getting into bed, nestling down, there are a few minutes of contentment that remind me of how it always used to be. I used to love going to bed. Remember that now. My life, so convoluted and iterative and searching, is nothing more complex or more simple than the million petaled flower of being here. I am alive, I think, as if. I've just discovered an extraordinary fact. I can feel my life being on. That's lovely. So that is an excerpt from uh, The Sleepless Unease by Samantha Harvey. The poem to which she is referring is uh, The Old Fools from Larkin's final collection, High Windows. I believe jan would like to now pass judgment on (laughs) that rendition of insomnia what do you think jan
3: well once i knew it was going to come on the program i hastily got it and with my slow reading i have not of course come to the end but i recognize it i recognize everything she says and i think it is beautifully written but of course in my case i think i've been there done it tried all that um, had the sleeplessness, thought of the poems, got out of bed, done all the things they said, and nothing changes. And so I am actually, after all this, coming to view the idea that it possibly isn't psychological and has nothing to do with anything except some lack in oneself, because i have been an insomniac from the beginning, and I knew that it was absolutely there because I went to a horrible boarding school and... We were all in a dormitory and the, 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 the other girls were breathing and I found that intolerable and there was no way I was going to sleep while other people were breathing. Um, so I started telling them stories uh, to try to keep them awake. And so I have a sort of sense of storytelling, poetry and insomnia all jumbled up in my mind. And I find that this is one book that does some of that too, Anyway, I'll stop there. I could go on forever about insomnia, and I won't.
2: (laughs) John, what have you been reading this week? I have been reading uh, a musical offering by Luis Sagasti, who is an Argentinian writer. Um, I talked about his previous uh, novel, Fireflies, on the podcast, and this one has been uh, released this year by the excellent Charco Press, with, a, again, a wonderful translation by uh, uh, Fionn Petsch. The book is about music. It's about more than music, but it, it starts with the story of Count Kaiserling, who was the Russian ambassador to, to the court of Saxony, who is an insomniac. <laughs> and he uh, employs J.S. Bach to write a series of variations, now known as the Goldberg Variations, to cure his insomnia. And he gets a young harpsichordist to play them each night in the next room to the count. And the brilliant thing that Sagasti does with this, he puts that next to the story of Sherat Sarad, the young girl who keeps, in in the Thousand and One Nights, keeps the, the caliph awake... Rather than puts him to sleep because she knows that as soon as the that he goes to sleep she'll be executed. So these sort of two mythologies work through the book. Uh, a, a recurring theme because the book does end up at, at the at, with the story of the count and and particularly with the the account of Glenn Gould, who probably gave the most famous uh, in the period of recorded music uh, accounts of the Goldberg Variations. Glenn Gould records them at twenty one mm. and uh, becomes an overnight sensation. And then he records them again in the same studio twenty-six years later. And uh you love the Sandy, that he makes the point that maybe the whole of Glenn Gould's work. In between, he's probably he's played every single bit of Park keyboard music. The idea that it's one thing, it's one, mm-hmm. uh, it's one piece of music, and that all music in a way is 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 connected. And even the pauses between the each of the bits of music are not really silence. It's really complex and beautifully written philosophical meditation on silence. There's an amazing key change. He talks about painters as well, Rothko, uh, Mondrian, the relationship between painting and music, synesthesia. Uh, It changes key dramatically in the middle of the book, where we suddenly find ourselves with the young Sagasti, as a conscript in the Argentinian army, crying in in a room with another group of Argentinian prisoners of war listening to music that he was in the Falklands War. And then he also meditates on the performance during the Siege of Leningrad of of Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, of um, the amazing story of Messiaen making instruments and writing and composing quartet for the end of time when he's in a prison camp. It calls itself a novel. If you like the kind of Zaywalt a uh, bricolage of history meditation popular culture put together in short fragmented meditative paragraphs you read it like sort of you read sort of pre-socratic philosophers rather than you read it as as it were a George Gissing novel i obviously love that mm. fortunately i do like all those things john so you're pushing on an open door there i'm going to read you this cuz andy will love this he may even know this story but this gives you a bit of the flavor Apparently, there is a song that the Rolling Stones only play for themselves when they're doing sound checks or rehearsing. Written by Jagger and Richards, it's never been recorded, and they've taken every possible step to prevent anyone recording it in secret. It's said they only play it in the presence of their most trusted team members, no one else, once or twice only, like a kind of mystical ritual before embarking on a tour. It's a melody that a few fortunate individuals are able to hum to themselves for a moment, until the band quickly imprints another song in its place to ensure that no one can retain it. (laughs) The lyrics, or the lyrics as they're recollected, don't appear to make much sense. At some point, the band thought about recording it on a new album, but as good artists, they knew that its moment had passed. No one is eager to welcome a person raised from the dead or born after their time. Of course, the rumour has spread and people talk about other groups that have done the same or they claim the story relates to a different band altogether. Beautiful melody, very simple harmonies, a devastating riff. Even better than satisfaction, they insist. Impossible. They've protected their treasure for 40 years to save themselves from having to play it all the time. Our best song hasn't been recorded yet, Keith Richards has said on more than one occasion. Yet everyone wanted to see this as an artist's creative optimism. Jagger says the same thing from time to time and once lets slip a koan with a smile. Yeah, every now and again we play it. Sometimes when they're improvising, they'll play just a couple of chords. In videos, Jagger and Richards glance at each other and laugh. It said that someone made a recording during a soundcheck in 1977 and it circulated in pirate copies, but no-one's sure which of the hundred <laughs> pirate ships it's on. In reality, just like the secret formula for Coca-Cola, no-one should care about knowing what it is. Since it went unheard at the time of its composition, the riff was never enfolded in the chrysalis of wonder that protects it from being merely obvious. Now, it would just sound like any other track by The Rolling Stones.
0: There you go. It's the rolling Rosetta Stone. <laughs> um that sounds terrific sold john sold that reminds me i I do genuinely think you'd enjoy it actually i do that is that is uh immediately you told me you were reading this it reminded me of the loser by thomas Thomas bernhardt which is uh, pretty much my favorite book that i read last year which again is about uh well it's like a one it's like a single paragraph for for (laughs) 200 pages of a man ranting about glenn gould so (laughs) (laughs) if that if that's your cup of tea it's available We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism.
1: After the ball, by.
2: It's as though I'm in 1893. um. (laughs) Okay, so that was
0: After the Ball by George J. Gaskin. And that was actually recorded in 1893, 127 years ago, the year in which The Odd Women by George Gissing was published. And we've got a few pieces of music in this episode, all of which first performed or written in 1893. And that's actually really... Mm. Fascinating to hear uh, <laughs> a little bit of a cultural context <laughs> for a book we're going to be talking about, so can I ask you Jan, as we tend to ask on backlisted as our opening question uh, i mean you've you've alluded to this already in fact where where were you when were you when you first read the odd women
3: well, I was very young I was eighteen or nineteen. And i just got into Cambridge, which was a, a mega event um, in those days for a, for a girl, and certainly from my sort of background. And we were sent a list, of um, us rather badly educated people, we sent a list on how we could get ourselves up a little bit to speed. And on this list uh, was The Odd Women and New Grub Street. And so I read them, and, and I was totally taken with it. It was pre-feminism. I think one of the things I have to say right now is that my period of growing up, which is the 40s and 50s, is closer to the world of dissing, although perhaps not in terms of, 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 of the actual po- real poverty of it, but it's closer in many ways the the assumptions to my world than I am now that my world is to the present. I,
0: I'd also like to interject for listeners' benefit and say that in the 40s and 50s... Uh, Gissing was still a relatively obscure writer, that the revival doesn't really begin until the 1960s, does it? So your tutors and you were somewhat ahead of the game.
3: The feminism was what was exciting. I thought, how daring. Mm. Well, you have to remember what it was actually like. I think people almost forget. The 60s didn't really start till 1967 or 66. Um, The early 60s were pretty well like that in... in, um, Assumptions. I mean, we we certainly thought that marriage and motherhood is what a girl did and it was necessary to do it. Um and even after this hugely prestigious degree, um many of us were it was suggested that we do a shorthand typing course so that we could get a job. Good lord. So that it isn't so mm. very different. And divorce was a huge stigma. It was possible, it was more yeah. possible than it was in Gittinger's time. But the the person who was the divorcee was stigmatised very much. And certainly in the earlier part of this period, when I was actually growing up, there were more women around than men. The wars had seen to that. And the spinster was a figure of um, mockery among the married. So, I, you know, Mm. that I thought, oh, well, that's ordinary. But it was the feminism that I was very excited about. But then came feminism and... I spent really the next half century or even more uh, excavating women writers, working on women writers and, you know, writing the balance while the chaps went on. You know, we kept on teaching the men, but, you know, the reading was done in, and the research was on um, early women writers. And so I didn't go back to Gissing at all until just now.
0: I would love to double back in a moment uh, and talk about how you felt about reading the book again.
3: This time I read it and I thought, well, there's the feminism. It sounds a bit like Mary Wollstonecraft and um, the sparring of the couple, a bit like the gay couple or like Beatrice and Benedict. You know, I've seen that and it's it's well done, it's cleverly done and it's interesting. But I now found even more interesting, far more interesting, these people on the edge, these women um, who... Had very little opportunity, very little choice in the world, and who's clung on to that little class position above the working class without the joviality and the fun of the working class, but not able to have the self confidence and enter the upper middle.
0: Simon, yes. I'd like to also say, I'll ask you, um, you know, you've written a lot about Gissing. So when did you first become aware of him
1: as a writer? Well, I also came to Gissing young, uh, also at at university in my uh, second year, where they they taught a paper called, I think it's been changed now, but we had eight weeks to do um, English literature and its background, 1830 to the present. (laughs) 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 So, uh, you know, my poor tutor, who's a a D.H. Lawrence expert, um, you know, had um, New Grub Street and an essay from me to speed read, uh, you know, the, the day before our class on it like yourselves and, and like a lot of people who listen to the podcast i'm fascinated by novels that are about novelists and about the process of of writing uh, and I, I i knew i liked dickens and i was looking for something that was a bit like dickens which gissing is although the differences between them are are really important so um so i i landed on uh, new grub street which i think I, I tell my students is the most depressing book hmm. about writing novels in the english language uh properly that uh... so true <laughs> I was set,
0: New Grub Street, first part of my do- English degree, and every time I sit down to write yes. anything,
3: <laughs>
0: I think about that book.
3: It is so haunting. You're right.
0: <laughs> I haven't read it. I didn't reread it for this. I chose not to. I thought, no, I'll, I'll read another Gissing. Mm. I won't read it. But it is the mo- anyone who is interested mm. in the world of Absolutely. books <laughs> publishing – writing and what it's like to grind out a three-volume novel (laughs) (laughs) needs needs to read
2: new grub street john you you'd never read it Uh, no i'm really pleased that i read it because it gives it gives a kind of a perspective on the odd women which i think in some ways might be i mean it might not a better novel but you know you know it's kind of it's it's less you feel that it's less Obviously autobiographical.
0: If you, for any reason, haven't read that book, please read it. It is. Please do. Still it's an absolute. 130 years later, the most brilliantly perceptive and accurate account of writing for money. But I, d- I just
3: wanted to add the uh, the way it foreshadows the creative writing industry Ralph <laughs> oh, yes. Jail says oh, yes. that you can teach novel writing in 10 easy lessons
0: <laughs> So John I just want to get this in quickly so people know, so we're dealt with New Grub Street but we're talking about the odd women and uh, this being backlisted, I'm just going to read the blurb from the back of the Virago Modern Classics edition from 1980 one of the few books by a man published by Virago uh, for the reasons that Jan was just talking about, we'll come on to how feminist is it as a as a question mm-hmm. in due course. <laughs> but certainly it resonated in it in that era particularly because it's so rare for women in that situation to have been treated with any degree of seriousness by any writer. So here is the blurb on the back of the nineteen eighty virago modern classic. There's a quote to kick it off. Questions of marriage don't interest me much. My work and thoughts are for the women who do not marry. The odd women, I call them. And uh, we should just say that the title, The Odd Women, refers both to leftover women and perhaps strange. There's a double meaning there. Um, Set in London in the 1890s, this powerful novel tells the story of five of these odd women. Alice and Virginia Madden are reduced to genteel poverty by the death of their improvident father. Their pretty sister Monica chooses a loveless marriage to escape their fate. Rhoda Nunn and her friend Mary Barfoot devote their lives to helping young women find emotional as well as economic independence. Rhoda is the embodiment of all that was meant by the new woman. Brave, spirited, feminine, seeking not to reject men, but to create for both sexes new ways of living new freedoms from old constraints, including, if necessary, marriage. Into her life comes Mary's engaging and forceful cousin, Everard. Mutually attracted, they are drawn into a passionate struggle for supremacy from which Rhoda emerges with a new understanding of what love between man and woman can mean and what its implications are for a woman determined also to be true to herself. Wow. (laughs) What do we think of that forty-year-old blurb?
1: Well, I think up until the last sentence, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it, it goes, it goes a bit Hollywood just towards the end.
3: It's somewhat true. It, 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 I don't really, I don't really agree with the, the vision that you've or the description that we've had of Barfoot. There, I don't think he comes across as Rhoda's equal. No. their discussion is always frivolous from his point of view. Um, it's the erotic game. So the notion that that was a serious discussion of feminism, it doesn't seem to me to, to to ring true. I mean, I I come at it obviously from 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 Mary Wollstonecraft, who struggled with precisely this business of passion and reason and so on, um, but also from um, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, where Henry Crawford decides to toy with the affections of the yeah. virtuous Fanny Price just to see how she's going to respond, a girl who he Mm. thinks could not respond to such a a sophisticated man as he is. And I see that Barford is doing some of the same. And he gets entrapped, he enjoys the game, and so starts to love, in fact. But what Gissing I think, shows, and what Jane Austen shows too, is that temperament and nature don't just change like that. And so, however much he goes on, how much he enjoys the game, how much he's entrammeled in actual sexual passion at one point. He's not going to change the way he is. Argument is mm. neither here nor there. But then that's kissing all over, isn't it?
2: Mr Ambiguity.
3: Ideology is no point on its <laughs> on its own. Ideology has to be somehow rooted in experience.
0: I found this very interesting, and I, 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 I wonder what you think about this. This is a... Um, from an essay that was written by Karen Chase in the 80s about the feminism or not of the odd women. Um, This is just a couple of, uh, just the opening paragraph. George Gissing has recently suffered the embarrassments of historical revision. In the last two decades, he has been rediscovered both as a proto-feminist and a misogynist. And since compelling evidence can be found on both sides, no point would be served by trying to fix Gissing's attitude with precision. Indeed, it is clear that Gissing possessed nothing so determinate as a precise attitude.
2: <laughs> so true. His
0: statements on the woman question were as awkward and confused as his relations with women. <laughs>
2: With. That is wonderful.
3: I, I don't, well, I don't think that's particularly fair. I don't think a novelist has to take up positions. I think the whole point is that what he is doing is dramatising the arguments and dramatising the positions. And so, of course, one can't say exactly where he stands because he stands in whatever character is saying. He's with them. That's why he's such a good novelist, I think. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that really at all.
0: To be fair to Karen Chase, she goes on to say, "If he did not have sufficient moral weight to impose his opinions on the age, he was at least sufficiently impressionable to allow the age to impose on him."
3: Mm.
1: Now, I think that's pretty good, Simon. What do you think? That's
3: better.
1: <laughs> yes, I think I think that's right. I think uh, Gissing would uh, would always complain. In his correspondence, when he was still alive, about uh, views espoused by his characters as being views espoused by him, and he would say, just because one of my characters, you know, thinks this. And I, there's this passage late in the novel, of a free and indirect style, where we, we're shown his thoughts, where he's thinking about how great it would be uh, to make a woman like Rhoda fall in love with him, so that he could conquer and dominate her. And you know, wouldn't it be great, uh, you know, to conquer a woman like that rather than a woman that's that's much more of a pushover? And I think there you get the sense both of guessing investing in the character that you know giving this character full voice but also that the character being ironized as well too that there is both a negative capability to to invest in the character to you know to make them live and breathe but also the moral engagement uh that, that helps the attentive reader see that you know that he's a badin. There is a similarity, I think, with Austen there too. If you think about the relationship between Emma and uh, and and Austen's narrator too, and I think that's the real hallmark of, of Gissing's writing in the nineties.
2: Before it all goes wrong, uh, you know, spoiler alerts, obviously for for people who haven't read the book between Everard and Rhoda, she herself, uh, you know, in the, in the in the at the moment when she's most, you know, the, up in the Lake District, marvelous, mm. marvelous to have a book that's got a bit of. A trip to the Lake District in it. it really excited me. She says, was he in truth capable of respecting her individuality or would his strong instinct of lordship urge him to direct his wife as a dependent to impose upon her his own view of things? She doubted whether he had much genuine sympathy with women's emancipation as she understood it. So Rhoda, even at the moment when she's most attracted, most, you know, she's, she's, she's accepted his proposal. She's already seeing through him. That's one of the things I love that the, the psychological kind of nuance in the book is 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 pretty mm. is really finely done. Whatever Gissing felt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I,
3: mean. I don't think there is any answer to some of this anyway. I mean, uh, having gone through <laughs> I don't know how many waves of feminism, um, we keep coming back to the same problems. People are competitive with each other. Any two people living together have to make all sorts of compromises that inevitably impinge on the individuality. So I think he's 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 looking in the same way as Mary Wollstonecraft was in her writing. They're looking at human problems. And, yeah, he's a writer. He's, he's showing what you can do with them.
0: Yeah. He's a writer about marriage. Yes. Uh, 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 of his novels that I've read they all seem to swing around that, really, and certainly... the, and the, the horrors of it. <laughs> yes, the horrors of it, but also what might be a solution to the marriage yes. problem as he sees it. Mm. That I, I read the novel that he wrote after yeah. The Odd Women, and we must, we should say, he writes something like two dozen novels in 20 years. It's a mm. phenomenal work rate. Mm. Um, but I read his novel In the Year of Jubilee, and that seems to be very much one of the things that that novel is about is how could a man and woman be married and, but not live together in a way which would be acceptable to society? Hmm. He seems to me to be very aware constantly of and um, pioneeringly what the economic value of such a union would be not just to the man, which is what you might expect from a male novelist of that era, but to the woman as well, and that's one of the questions in The Odd Women.
3: Yes, but he, he does think all the time that, in a way, there can be no absolute equality between any two people. There's always this little struggle for mastery of some sort. The Odd Women is, woman is full of different types of marriage, isn't it? Mm. The Micklethwaites are the sort of ideal couple, but that's a traditional marriage. It goes back to you know the form that works, where the man has got brought finally brought in the money and keeps the woman and her sisters, and this can work. And there are loads of other marriages which are disastrous. Yeah, they're absurdly disastrous. Some of them. I mean, the, the, I love the one who um, has to leave his family and children because his 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 wife can't understand his jokes. And he's going mad with trying to explain himself year after year, and he finally just can't do it any longer. And there's the other one who goes into the lunatic asylum because he, you know, the woman goes on about the servants and whatever. I mean, it, it's full of these, but I think there's something deeper, and that is that whoever, whatever it is, there is this little undercurrent of difficulty in all human relations.
0: Mm. That was Sir Edward Elgar himself conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra in 1933, his Serenade for Strings that was first performed publicly in 1893 and has probably just been on the proms, in fact. So, Simon, could you just tell us a bit about Gissing's career as a novelist? It's intense uh, for a kind of 20 to 25
1: year period, isn't it? Indeed, yes. And as you've said, he's a tremendously um prolific uh, novelist. You know, he writes very quickly. I've seen one gissing manuscript where clearly there's not much time for going back and revising. He he puts the stuff out because he's short of money um and needs the uh you know and, and, and needs such income as novel writing can get him. So for the eighteen eighties, he is one of the great writers of um of the working class. So Demos, the Netherworld, uh, fall into that uh into into that period where he writes with I think both honest sympathy and honest revulsion um, about the class below him. Mm. If you think of Gissing as being a writer of the of the lower middle class, and the great break at the end of that period is the um, is the death of his first wife, the the working class woman, the um, the, the former prostitute whom he whom he marries uh, first. There's an extraordinary passage in his diary where he writes about the experience of going to see her her dead body uh, in in her lodgings. Um, after after which he he goes abroad um travels comes back and becomes the great writer of the of the middle class particularly the the lower middle class where he he writes novels like in the year of jubilee the odd women and also a novel which to me is his masterpiece um a novel called the whirlpool which penguin put out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. edited by by dj taylor another meditation on different kinds of marriage and money um and and class um but i think the uh the, the part of his uh uh, of his career that's probably least well-known is his, is his short stories. Uh, that initially Gissing uh, thought of the short story as being you know, beneath him. He wrote a few just to get money quickly in his very early life in America, but he thought that they were inartistic. If you were a proper novelist, you didn't write short stories. But when he started using an agent, the agent said, oh, it's a, it's a shame you don't use... Um, Shame you don't do short stories, George, because I could, um, you know, I could get you seventeen guineas for um, for an afternoon's work. So after Gissing becomes a father, um, he writes, um, you know, eighty to hundred uh, short stories, and, and then and, and-, and-, and can we just say, um,
0: <laughs> would you, was Gissing proud of his his um, talent as a hack? It was hacking it out a thing that he
1: took delight in. No, he was uh, he. He actually took things very seriously, and uh, the, the the experience of reading his uh, diary, where he's very severe on other novelists that he think are not much good. So you know how diary entries where he'll say wrote ten pages, not very good. Read some Marie Corelli. It's even worse. Rain <laughs> all day. You know this is the kind of tone of so many of the the entries of his, of his of his diary. But he thinks if you are going to write novels, you should try really hard to write decent ones, because he's very severe on writers both of his generation and the previous generation that he that he thinks aren't, aren't much good. Um, and then just in the last few years before his death, he he begins to experiment more. So he writes the private papers of Henry Rycroft, which I like less, but for a lot of people it's their favourite guessing book. It's almost plotless. It was also big in Japan. <laughs> yeah, indeed really? it was, yes. Yes, it was a bestseller in
0: Japan, that particular <laughs> book, that hitherto unexploited market for Gissing.
1: Um, and at the time of his death, he was working on his first historical novel. So I think he was always pushing himself. This is, you know, someone that towards mm. the end of his life was trying to learn Spanish so that he could read Don Quixote in the, in the original language. So he was, you know, tremendously hardworking and serious.
0: And so The Odd Women falls right in the... Sweet spot in the middle period, doesn't it? Absolutely. He's, he's living right
2: in Brixton, yet. isn't he? At the time that it's it's written, under.
1: Uh, I think
3: it was in Exeter. I thought he was living.
1: I think that's right. he's in Brixton when it comes out, yes, and he but writes it. he lived it in
3: Exeter while he wrote it. When it.
1: his second wife, uh, he tries mm. living outside of London. But, you know, I'll, I'll get away from get away from London. Um, you know, and I'll try, you know, an honest life, um, you know, out in the sticks. But I think, you know, London draws him back because, like Dickens, he needs the the streets of London for his uh, for inspiration for his work. As you can see from from this novel. What I love about Gissing
0: is he loves writing about London and the suburbs. I'm, I'm mm. always interested in the literature of the suburbs, even if he doesn't like the suburbs, which of course he doesn't. But then he doesn't like London either. So <laughs> he's an equal opportunities uh, yeah. uh, uh, author in that respect. But Jan, have you got a bit you could read us from The Odd Women?
3: Well, I have. I wanted to, because he goes on a little and um, time is short, I'm going to skip bits, but I wanted to, <laughs> to take a bit um, that describes the life of um, the two Madden sisters who don't marry. There were six of them. Originally, and I mean, they are an ill-fated lot. As uh, one drowns <laughs> herself, and one dies of consumption, and so on. Anyway, the three are left, and the pretty one, of course, marries and enters this this dreadful union. But the other two are left, and I, I love the specificity of their very impoverished and and, and narrow life. The uh, what they eat. I mean, the eating is is extraordinary. They, um, I think, it's Mildred who is having her supper of potato with salt. And um, Virginia, who's got a sort of bed set into which Alice moves, a little room, has got a kettle and a saucepan um, on which she has to cook everything. They have rice with a little butter on it. Mm. And that's their evening meal. And the result mm. of this is that they are totally undernourished, all of them, yeah. both of them. Yeah. And yeah. they're wonderful descriptions of their... their they're sort of aging. They're only thirty-three or thirty-four, and they're aging, and their flabby skin and their wrinkles. and they're, He's very, I guess, is horribly attuned to the aging female body. I think, I think he rather overdoes some of it. <laughs> they've got puffy cheeks, and they've got endless. Anyway, it goes on, but it's to do with poverty. It's to do with the fact that they simply don't have enough to eat. So anyway, this is this is a little bit. Um They've moved in together. They've got a. um a little inheritance, a very small one that gives them a dividend, and they're so afraid to touch the money that they don't do the one thing they might do, which is perhaps try and start a school if they had a little more Mm. um, umption about them in the way that Mary Wollstonecraft does a hundred years earlier. Surely, Alice began by murmuring half-absently, I shall soon hear of something. I'm dreadfully uneasy on my own account, her sister replied. You think the person at South End won't write again? I'm afraid not. And she seems so very unsatisfactory. Positively illiterate. Oh, I couldn't bear that. Virginia gave a shudder as she spoke. I almost wish, said Alice, that I had accepted the place at Plymouth. Oh, my dear, five children and not a penny of salary. It was a shameless proposal. It was indeed, sighed the poor governess. But there's so little choice for people like myself. I know it will end in my taking a place without salary. People seem to have still less need of me, lamented the companion. Then they go on. Supposing we neither of us obtained employment before the end of the year? We have to live, in that case, more than six months. You on seven pounds and I on ten. It's impossible, said Virginia. Let us see. Put it in another form. We have both to live together on seventeen pounds. That is she made a computation on a piece of paper that is two pounds sixteen shillings and eight pence a month. Let us suppose this month at an end, that represents fourteen shillings and twopence a week. Yes, we can do it. She laid down her pencil with an air of triumph, her dull eyes brightened as though she had discovered a new source of income. <laughs> we cannot, dear urged Virginia in a subdued voice. Seven shillings rent. That leaves only seven and twopence a week for everything. Everything. We could do it, dear, persisted the other, if it came to the very worst. Our food need not cost more than sixpence a day, three and six a week. I do really believe, Virgie, we could support life on less. Say, on fourpence. Yes, we could, dear. Whatever happens, my dear, said Alice presently. I'm nearly stopping here. With all the impressiveness of tone she could command, we must never entrench upon our capital. Never, never. Oh, never. you grow <laughs> old and useless. If no one will give us even board and lodging for our services, if we haven't a friend to look to, Alice threw in, as though they were answering each other in a doleful litany. Then, indeed, we shall be glad that nothing tempted us to entrench on our capital. It would keep, just keep us, her voice sank, from the workhouse. At nine o'clock... They took a cup of cocoa and a biscuit, and half an hour later they went to bed. Lamp oil was costly, and indeed they felt glad to say, as early as possible, that another day had gone by.
0: As early as possible. (laughs) That's wonderful, right? It reminded me, Jan, of of Orwell's famous description of the theme of all Gissing's (laughs) (laughs) novels. Yes. It's three words. Not enough money. enough money, yeah.
3: yes. But especially for the educated, refined person. I mean, that that's the horror, isn't it? So that the, the working class gets a little bit of money and it goes to the pub and has fun, at least has that little period of fun. But the, this group can't even do that. They can't take themselves out of it.
0: Simon, he has, Gissing has the traditional for its period ambivalence towards the thing Jan was just talking about you know like forster in howards end a mm. sort of hostility or ambivalence about the clerks the lower middle class even mm. trying to better themselves mm. that description of him as being um a symptom rather than a cause if you like that he he he's able to to contain multitudes <laughs> if yes. you will you know he's able to to both be excited by the idea of education and emancipation but also pessimistic about what will happen to these people who have no outlet for this this undirected
1: culture. Absolutely. And I think Gissing would say, you know that's not his fault. <laughs> that's the world's fault, you know, because he is a realist novelist, so he portrays the world as he sees it. And um, if the world makes false promises to particularly gifted individuals, then it's his role to expose the falsity of those of those promises that um, you know, his novels are complex. And self-contradictory and ambiguous because the world as he sees it is is complex and self-contradictory and uh, ambiguous. And indeed, his characters are are those things as well too. Gissing is great at writing characters who can't do the thing that will help themselves. <laughs> but who in, life, who in life does? Which of mm, us does? Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all these seething uh, masses. Exactly. And, then- and
2: he, he was a friend of Wells, H.G. Wells. Um, mm. And there's a wonderful thing that Wells says. He said he was a pessimistic writer. He spent his big, fine brain depreciating life because he would not and perhaps could not look life squarely in the eyes, neither his circumstances nor the conventions about him, nor the adverse things about him, nor the limitations of his personal character. But whether it's nature or education that made this tragedy, I cannot tell. But that's an interesting idea, isn't it? He kind of, he looks at the world, he observes the world, but he it's a, a silly thing to say that his best writing goes into his novels. But I found this all the way through. The more I read about Gissing, the more I found him quite personally difficult to, to like. But the more brilliant I think that makes, <laughs> makes him as a novelist. Yes.
0: Yes, he has Trollope's facility for production, but is far more splenetic than Trollope is. Mm. I'd read in the Year of Jubilee, and one of the things I noticed in in the Year of Jubilee is I'm absolutely convinced that he's written it so fast that he's forgotten to include a scene, (laughs) that he refers to a scene later in the book, which I went back and looked for and definitely isn't there because he's moving so quick. While he writes, yes. he's so involved with the narrative. Simon, do we know how much planning he
1: did or is he improvising on a theme? I think he's improvising on a, on a theme. I've never come across any uh, notes for for novels that I think he, he sits down and he, and he writes them, you know, at a jog.
3: Didn't he say that he, he wrote New Grub Street in six weeks?
1: Something like that, yes.
3: So that it was a rush and he didn't think that much of it. I think that's possibly why it has a slightly happier ending than most of them. It's gloomy, but it's not that gloomy. I mean, yes, somebody's dead and somebody's this but they aren't all dead.
0: You just didn't have time. <laughs> care to hazard a guess who wrote that in 1893 <laughs> <laughs> you're right to be silent <laughs> yes. i have no idea sibelius well very good good lord very good, good sibelius lord. is yes, right. impromptu number two in g minor opus five so it's a very early piano piece by sibelius but that's how long ago we are we're in that we're in the the a uh, world where sibelius and elgar are both young are both these are very early. <laughs> these are very early pieces. Simon, was there a a part of the odd women that um, you chosen to share with us?
1: Uh, yes, I wanted to pick on this one because I said I was interested about writers on writing. So this is Rhoda Nunn and Mary Barfoot, who are the two leaders of this proto-feminist collective. Uh, that, that's at the heart of the novel. So this is Gissing's uh, new woman novel. His attempt to, to, you know, to to write about this figure of, you know, what might educated women be if they're not going to be wives and, and mothers? What you know, what roles might they might they find? So Rhoda and and Mary set up a, an establishment that will uh, help them train these half million extra uh, odd women for, you know, better existences than some of the other characters experience. And they've decided to um, uh, turn away a young woman, Miss Royston, from this collective. Personal feeling is misleading you, Rhoda pursued. Miss Royston had a certain cleverness, I grant, but do you think I didn't know that she would never become what you hoped? All her spare time was given to novel reading. (laughs) If every novelist could be strangled and thrown into the sea, we should have some chance of reforming women. (laughs) The girl's nature was corrupted with sentimentality, like that of all but every woman who is intelligent enough to read what is called the best fiction but not intelligent enough to understand its vice. Love, love, love. A sickening sameness of vulgarity. What is more vulgar than the ideal of novelists? They won't represent the actual world. It would be too dull for their readers. In real life, how many men and women fall in love? Not one in every 10,000, I am convinced. Not one married pair in 10,000 have felt for each other, as two or three couples do in every novel. There is the sexual instinct, of course. But that is quite a different thing. The novelist daren't talk about that. The paltry creatures daren't tell the one truth that would be profitable. The result is that women imagine themselves noble and glorious when they are most near the animals. This Miss Royston, when she rushed off to perdition, ten to one, she had in mind some idiot heroine of a book. Now of course in this passage uh, Rhoda is going to be corrected because she will have the experience of falling in love later in the novel so she f- she'll find out what it's like but there is a there is a grain of truth in that I was really struck rereading it this time where Rhoda says that one of the things they want to teach the young women who pass through the doors of their establishment is not to be sentimental. She wants to teach young women not to be self-sacrificing because that's one of the things that you know that keeps them under the heel of Victorian patriarchy, or you know the injustices of the of the world that they live in, just as as Gissing, at the same time as we've been saying, wanted to write uh, novels that were unsentimental, that he would write novels that would that would feel, that would you know enable you to judge, but would not let you off easily, or would not let the characters off off easily. It's a very sparing, uh, so unsparing rather aesthetic.
3: That quotation reminded me hugely of the reviews of Mary Wollstonecraft wrote about. Um... Mm what she regarded as silly novels, and which she said each of these novels has um, virtue rewarded with a coach and six. This was a very bad thing too. She had exactly that, and that if a girl is going to grow up and be rational, she really must eschew that kind of fiction because otherwise she will be ruined for rational motherhood um, and ruined for any effort in independence. So (laughs) it's very, very similar to what she said. Mind you, Mary Wilsenkopf had her somewhat commutants also in the way that Rhoda Nunn did. She too, of course, having uh, having preached rationality in, in a vindication of the rights of women, um, and perhaps missed out or felt that you could underplay the sexual um, desire of women, um, then, of course, fell very much into love and realised that the whole thing was rather more complicated than she thought. She never went back on the idea that rationality is required for women, but nonetheless... She herself in her own life had some of the uh, problems of Rhoda.
0: I'd just like to ask both of you, I have here the review, a contemporary review of the novel of The Odd Women from the Illustrated London News, written by Clementina Black in 1893. Mm. And it's a very positive review. She says it's the best novel that Mr Gissing has so far written. But she goes on to complain about the ending, and I'm saying to listeners: if you haven't read the book, you may wish to fast forward by three minutes, so there are no spoilers. You've had 127 years, but nevertheless, we have to we have to warn you, some of you. Anyway, she questions the ending, and yeah. she says this: she describes uh, Rhoda's rejection of. Uh, everard on the on the terms that she cites as being inconsistent and she says this this is the conduct of an ungenerous a selfish and especially an undisciplined woman and is out of keeping with all the previous history of Rhoda Nunn it would almost seem as if hatred of the conventional happy ending had led mr gissing to that same sacrifice of truthful portraiture into which so many of his <laughs> predecessors have been betrayed by their love of it. <laughs> now, that's pretty very, good. Very good,
3: isn't <laughs> it? Very nice. That's yeah. pretty
0: good for 18, wow. 1893. But what she says, which is really, really fascinating, happily, in a good novel, it is the impression of the best part which remains while the weaker pages fade away. And she goes on to specifically compare Gissing to Dickens, And she says, what we carry away from this novel, like we carry away from a Dickens novel, are the vivid moments rather Mm. than whatever quibbles we might have with the architecture of the whole. Is that a valid criticism of Gissing now, 120 blah years later, do you think?
1: I would certainly concur uh, with Clementina Black about Gissing's hatred of the happy ending because um, he spent his entire career demolishing the certainties of the Victorian happy ending. But, but I think it's I think it's it's well. There's a couple of things. It's great because it asks where is Rhoda going to go? You know what what is what is she going to do at the end of this novel that won't diminish her? You know, I say to my students when I'm teaching The New Woman. You know what the New Woman wants in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties? She wants to be educated. She wants to have a fulfilling career she would like to have a fulfilling romantic and erotic existence and she'd like to have children as well, maybe, without interfering with any of those. So let's not patronise the Victorians. Let's not imagine that we've got all of these things fixed.
0: Mm. We said we'd mentioned Edmund Widders, the dreadful stalker Edmund Widdersen. Yes. Who reminded... I think he's wonderful. He, he, as a, but as a character, just, it's, Jan, it's, you know, he...
3: It's just amazing. He
0: reminded me of the similarly dreadful... Ernest Eccles in Patrick Hamilton's 20,000 Streets Under the Sky who, who makes good. a similar manoeuvre yes. on a younger and vulnerable woman. Very good. Yes. In the most the, <laughs> the most sort of cringingly awful
3: I, Yes. And, and he can be moving. I, I love the bit where he's, when he first gets his house, which of course he loses by the end. He's lost everything um, through this marriage. I mean, he's not dead, which has to be said is his wife is but um, <laughs> he's lost everything else but what he loved most was he it was his house and remember when he got yeah. it he said he walked around the empty house with nothing in it just to feel that this was yes. his that this was his place where his soul was and that he would never leave it and there are, there are bits like that that are, are really very very moving and then there's a point where he actually comes close to understanding himself and the absurdity of himself yeah. um And then he pulls back from it, and off we get. We get this person who stalks the woman and his obsession and his surveillance. But it's a wonderful, I think, a depiction of addiction. I mean, he's addicted to her. He he can't bear it, and he knows how absurd he is. I mean, the book is full of people traipsing around London, isn't it? It's the most amazing. They're all. I I have never heard so much about London buses (laughs) and roads and trains and. That and the weather are two things that really have stuck it with me, the, the weather and the trains. But, but Edmund walks everywhere and he's so upset and he's so jealous and so miserable and all he can do is walk.
0: I, I think Gissing is one of the great poets of traipsing around London, as you, as you Absolutely. say.
2: He's also very good at bringing it back to insomnia. He's also very good at pe- people who can't sleep well, waking up yes. and, and wander, <laughs> wandering the streets to try and... Yes. Uh, um, I think we are. Uh, I think I'm afraid our, our lamp oil is running low, <laughs> and uh, the evening draws on. So we're going to have to. to, to uh, we're going to have to uh, bring this conversation, sadly, to a close. Wonderful, huge thank you to Jan and to Simon for adding lustre to the reputation of, I think we all agree, is still maybe underappreciated writer. To Nikki Birch for weaving four feeds into one euphonious whole. And to unbound for the uh, omnibus fare home.
0: I, I'd like <laughs> to just chip in and say to the listeners that uh I hadn't read a Gissing novel for 30 years. And having read both The Orb Women and In the Year of Jubilee, relatively hard on the heels of one another, they're so entertaining. I, I I'd just like to mm. to to it's a good read. Yeah, that yeah. the the that that he keeps things trotting along in a in a totally <laughs> as you pass from one scene of dreadful gloom to another <laughs> it's just i so enjoyed reading them thank you both so much
2: and they that- it's true. And so, stim- I mean, really interesting, stimulating. And, and, and as we, I think we've said that, that, that the issues that he raises and, 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 and kind of disinters in, in The Odd Women, it's not like we've got this sorted out yet. These are, these are big human questions that we still, anybody who's married or who lives, lives with another person has, is, has been through things that this novel shows you. So, and and yes. so there's never been a better lockdown, read.
0: <laughs> um, you can download all 120 previous episodes of backlisted plus follow links clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at backlisted.fm and we're always pleased if you contact us on twitter or facebook and now on
2: instagram too You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear Backlisted episodes early and for less than the price of a half (laughs) bottle of Greengrocer's gin, (laughs) lock listeners get to two extra locklisteds a month. That academy of pleasurable pursuits where Andy, Nikki, and I share our reading, watching, looking and listening for the general entertainment of all who subscribe.
0: Uh, Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And uh, we have a batch of you here. Um, John, should, do you want to go first?
2: Yeah, I'll go first. Michael Hurliman, Caroline Hutchings, Suzanne Morgan, Tony Cross, Sarah Teitler, Judith Sim, Jamie Jenkins, Emery Lee, Christopher J Hodges, Wendy Lothian, Catherine Previser, Susan Fraser, Rebecca Kahn, Mia Moore and Rohan Berry Crickmar,
0: Victoria Gregg, Helena, Jim Eaton Terry, Deborah Kelly, David Annandale, Rallon, Tracy Powell, Glenn Davis, Jane McCabe, Steve Knight, Mary Foster, Evan Haining, Angela Dixon, Phil, and Francis Babbage.
2: Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you all very much. Um, that's it. We will be back in a fortnight. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, and to play us
0: out, Nikki, Aha. could we have clip number six and I will set it up. And to play us out, uh, we've heard music by uh, men from 1893, but I thought it would be entirely appropriate and overdue for us to play out with a piece of by a female composer an american called amy beach this was written in 1893 and first performed in 1893 there has never been to my knowledge a television adaptation of the odd women there should be and this should be the theme music for it Uh, it's called romance for violin and piano see you next time
2: adverts you can sign up to our patreon that's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted as well as getting the show early you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call locklisted which is andy me and nikki talking about the books music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight